0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good and I'm very, very happy about our special guest today. Yeah, as am I. Today we're very happy to welcome a wonderful educator and a world-class expert on emotion, power, and morality to the show, Dr. Dacher Keltner. Dr. Keltner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he directs the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab. He's also the founder and co-director of the Greater Good Science Center. His research focuses on the evolutionary basis and social functions of emotions, how social hierarchies form and how power and status impact our behavior, and how humans navigate moral judgments. He's also one of the leading scholars in the study of facial expression. Dr. Keltner is also the author of three books, Born to be Good, The Compassionate Instinct, and most recently, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. He's published roughly 200 scientific articles somewhere in that zip code. He's had his research covered by Time in the Wall Street Journal, and he even collaborated with Pixar on the film Inside Out. So it's a very diverse bio. So, Dacher, thanks so much for doing this today. How have you been handling everything? Things are pretty good.
1: You know, December is looking a little bit better than November and, you know, the pandemic the pandemic is upsetting, but I'm hopeful.
0: Well, I'm glad. I'm really glad. It's really great to have you here today. As we kind of covered in the bio, there's so much that we could talk about with you that it was actually kind of a struggle when I was putting this together, figuring out where to start exactly. But it feels like a good place is your work on studying emotion, which has been really central in the work that you've done broadly. And some of the early work on emotions suggested that there was like a relatively small number of emotions. I'm thinking of Inside Out right now with their five emotions as these kind of five fundamental building blocks of everything. You've done some really fascinating work here, and you've found that things are often a bit fuzzier than that. So just to kind of ground our conversation and find a starting point, how many emotions are there, and how do you even go about measuring what an emotion is?
2: And what is an emotion, anyway? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Rick.
1: <laughs> and it's good to be with, with Rick, too, as always, in conversation over the years. Yeah, you know, so what is an emotion? You know, it's interesting, the first wave of the science of emotion, which was really the inside out taxonomy of anger, fear, sadness, disgust, and then it had one very broad state, joy. And that really is the legacy of Paul Ekman, very famous scholar in the field, and a lot of the science that that work in the 70s inspired. But those are kind of fight or flight emotions, right? When you think about it, like protecting the individual, very much in keeping with scholarship of the time. Coming out of that, you know, and I was a postdoc with Paul, I really, you know, like Rick has written, I really felt like there are these fundamental passions or emotions that are about our social life, that are about our social relationships. And so to your question, Rick, I really think of emotions as, you know, and this gets a little clunky, but kind of multifaceted brief responses that help us meet the challenges and opportunities in our social lives, Right. And, and the social is key. And so what that framing did when we started to publish this, John Haidt and I and others kind of in the late nineties is it said, there are a set of emotions about individual survival, but there are emotions that you've written about, you know, Rick, that are part of our attachments to caregivers and to partners. There are emotions about hierarchies, as Forrest said, of envy and jealousy and power and dominance and pride. And then there are emotions that are about our collective life. You know, sort of looking at this shift in evolutionary thinking away from the selfish gene to relationships and groups. Emotions are the fundamental glue. So it, to our, your question for us, we rely on a lot of different methods to start to map what I think are about 20 distinct emotions.
2: And you've written a paper about this recently that was an American psychologist that we'll link to in the show notes that I just thought was a masterpiece of thoughtfulness, grounded in science, and immediately useful as well. It's one of those high-end scholarly works that normal people can (laughs) really get a lot of value from. So we'll definitely link to it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, and it's just worth, I, I would really encourage our audience, since it's a kind of a Hansen-type audience that really reveres science, you know?
2: <laughs> in the mystery, in the mystery, in the and mystery. the mystery, thank you.
1: <laughs> Discovery-oriented science. And this is mysterious. So, you know, just to give a little note to this, you all should go to alancallen.com, where Alan, my former grad student, maps out the paper that Rick talks about and a bunch of others. But, you know, it's so interesting. What Alan did is first-of-a-kind in the field It's called computational neuroscience, which is instead of just looking at people's feelings about six emotions or six film clips, he said, let's get thousands of things out in the world and have people rate them or judge them or respond to them and and use really cool statistics. And you end up with this really complicated space of emotion that when you look at it, you're like, yeah, that's what my emotion is like. like. Sometimes I feel beauty. Sometimes I feel awe. Sometimes I feel horror or admiration, they're blends of states. Take a look at it, it's really, he's he's a game-changing scientist.
2: So I wanna play with that a little bit because it could sound initially sort of abstract, Yeah. but what you're really talking about is the ways in which our individual experiences, especially that aspect that is emotional, somatic, attitudinal, you know, kind of all mushing together with a certain amount of viewpoints in the mix, okay, Basically, this so-called space of different emotional qualities is really how our experience flows and changes over the day. So we kind of move through this space in our own experience, right? We can move from joy to sorrow, to worry, to irritation, to kind of bland, calm, and so forth. Okay, that, so that it's very intimate, actually, this seemingly abstract space. And then I had kind of a question for you related to this notion from... Complex systems theory of strange attractors. Like, what, where do we kind of hang out in that space? Which goes from emotions/slash feelings more into moods. And there's been a lot of focus in clinical psychology on negative moods, you know, anxiety especially. Although certainly anger and you know, and and sadness too. But what about people who gradually accumulate, in effect, a positive mood? So they're increasingly drawn toward those attractors, those ways of being, as it were, in this emotion space that are, let's say, calm well-being with a warm and open heart, you know, that's sort of our brand, right? That's what we're going after here. How do, you know, does that happen? And how do people abide increasingly? How do they dwell increasingly in in those positive pro-social moods?
1: Yeah, you know, such a deep, insightful assessment of our work, Rick, and I hope that for those people who explore this what we find is, is you know, there's this really complex space of a feeling, right, that you know intuitively that the science hadn't captured. We were focused on six. Now, to answer Rick, to Forrest's question, we're doing 20, 25. It's this complicated space that, as you nicely said, we move around in during the day. And sometimes through acts of consciousness and attention, it becomes a peak emotion, right? Wow, I'm really feeling gratitude right now or compassion or anger, right? And then it it slows down into more mood-like states. Um, so that is, I, I think our work really captures this quality of our subjective lives. And then the question is, when you look at these maps, people have profiles, right? And we've documented that. So some people really are in kind of the compassion love space. They just feel tender. Other people are, are more, and this is Lonnie Shioda. other people gravitate to like, Awe and curiosity and wonder and they get all worked up, right? And so the question is, how do you move into those spaces? And I think Rick, the kind of work that you cover and your teachings, the kind of work at the Greater Good Science Center, points to a path like you know that that's been around for as you wrote in Buddha Brain, like twenty five hundred years. You know, you practice, you get outside, you you think about what you're grateful for. We just published a paper on this practice we call the awe walk, where you, once a week you go out and find awe outside uh, with some instructions. And what we found is exactly what you described, which is for people who are 75 years old or older, who are in this study, who tend to feel a little bit more anxious, as they practiced awe, they gravitated to that space in their everyday lives, right? They, they're like, oh, I'm, whoa, I'm not outdoors. I'm not doing the awe walk. But, you know, gee, this food looks really remarkable. Uh, look how beautiful my partner's face is, whatever. So it's it's the challenge of life is to gravitate to the space that you desire.
2: Yeah, I think of the residues of one kind of experience or another sinking in. And there's this traditional saying that your mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon. And if you repeatedly experience moments of gratitude, authentic experiences of grit and resilience and confidence and and warm heartedness for others, gradually those feelings, the accumulated residues of those emotional moments uh, gradually become internalized in neurobiological ways. And you increasingly find yourself uh, centered in a mood of that way of being, which then as a trait, tends to foster those as states, which then give you chances to reinforce them as traits, which is incredibly hopeful and positive.
1: It is. And it also has these reminders. That's such a, I wish we had better science on that, Rick. You know, the caveat there, not the caveat, but the warning sign, you know, my former student, Jen Lerner, did amazing work showing, you know, there's a lot of fear in the air right now. Some of it is irrational, right? And she finds, man, if you jack people's fear up about immigrants or terrorism, they start to fear everything. There is residue, right? And suddenly they're like, oh, I definitely have cancer and I'm going to be the person that gets the gum disease and I'll lose my money. I think it gives us this insight into the mind of, of what residues do you want to have guide your daily life.
0: One of the things that's really interesting to me about your work, and we're talking about this balance of like positive and negative emotions, So they both have kind of a tail associated with them and we can develop tendencies toward either group. Uh, We do a lot of conversation on the podcast or have about things like the negativity bias, like the ways in which humans survived really harsh conditions when we were evolving. And, you know, evolutionary psychology isn't without its issues, but it kind of begs a question under really, really harsh environments where resources were scarce. And as you're saying, fear is contagious and corrosive. Why did we kind of develop positive emotions at all? Like what's the value of compassion or gratitude or any of those things? under an extremely resource-bounded environment?
1: What an amazing question. And, you know, it took... We're still grappling with the answers to the, that question, but, but I think we're starting to see things, and I'll give you a really interesting example. You know, E.O. Wilson suggests that there are 20 or 30 eusocial species or really social species, some birds, certain rodents, some primates, and they survive socially. And we are the most social species no comparison you know maybe you know maybe certain bees but the first wave of emotion science that we've been talking about was guided by i believe implicitly richard dawkins selfish gene 1978 massively influential book and that you know in the late 90s you started to hear about attachment theory more you know you started that ricks profile that you start to hear about collective emotion and hypersociality right and just the raw facts we take our vulnerable offspring together, we hunted food together, we raised food together and shared it, and then we faced basic forms of peril socially. One of my favorite examples is how we fend off cold. Facing extreme cold is one of the defining evolutionary challenges. It's just raw fact. Like, if your body gets too cold, you die. Some mammals and humans, we all huddle together, you know, we like get in close and it starts to develop this collective sense. So I believe, to answer your question with that long-winded prelude, that hyper-vulnerable offspring gave rise to the attachment emotions, right? Of you know love and sympathy and desire to reproduce. Our social networks and coalitions that became our groups to hunt and to find food and to defend ourselves gave rise to gratitude and love for friends. Our collectives gave rise to ecstasy and awe. And, and we're starting to really map those with a lot of the kind of scientific tools we've talked about. So, and Barb Fredrickson made this point earlier in the field. It was massively influential that, you know, yeah, negative emotions, it's good to attend to negative stuff, but it's essential to feel good towards the people who help you survive, right? Like caregivers, friends, group members.
2: And that's what a positive emotions do. You know, my wife and I are binge-watching our way through the History Channel series, Alone, which, if you haven't seen, I really recommend it. Essentially, they take 10 super-duper trained survival experts in their peak of health, drop them in really remote, rugged conditions. The third season, for example, is about Patagonia, and then they operate the cameras themselves. They're utterly isolated, And the last person who remains, usually after around 60, 70, 80 days, wins half a million dollars. And what's striking is how these Uber experts who are allowed to bring in good equipment like saws and hatchets and so forth, they all tap out by two months in. They cannot survive on their own. Even with absolutely good technology on the edge of land with boar and fish and game. They can't do it on their own. Tubers, they just can't do it. And that's really, really telling. I think about how back in the Serengeti Plains, exile was a death sentence. So that's really sets the frame here. I wanted to ask you, building on Forrest's question, in your comments there, Dacher, in particular about compassion. Uh, I was blown away by your book, Born to be Good. It's a wonderful exploration of how it is it that humans, unlike even our nearest primate relatives, the bonobos and chimpanzees, have become so capable of compassion and altruism in particular, including at the cost of individual survival and individual gene transfer. And I wondered if you could speak to the evolutionary origins of compassion and maybe related to that altruism, and if you will, any implications or lessons for us today.
1: I was blown away when we started to study compassion, you know, and it goes back to Forrest's question, like, You know, I grew up in the world of anger, fear, sadness, disgust, surprise, joy, because that's the emotion world. That's the emotional brain, you know? And, you know, frankly, like you, Rick, you go to East Asian traditions, you know, and you're like, whoa, there's a much different view of things there. And two things happened in the late 90s that really spurred the research. One was, I was, you know, in a conference, there were scientists and Buddhist practitioners and the Dalai Lama said, compassion is a natural state in the brain that didn't exist in Western science. (laughs) Except, except Charles Darwin. And Darwin was a loving dad and a transformative event in his life was he had to nurse his daughter, Annie, to her death, who died at age 12, I think, of tuberculosis. And he was blown away by his feelings of compassion. And he said, sympathy is our strongest instinct. And those communities that have the most sympathetic members will flourish and raise the greatest number of offspring. And when I read that, In Descent of Man from 1871, it's like, we've totally forgotten this, you know, for sociological reasons that, you know, our offspring take years to reach the age of independence, 10 to 15 years. They die without a lot of care, right? They have features that make us care for them. The skin-to-skin contact and oxytocin release is regulated by very old parts of the brain. We respond, you know, new science from UCLA, you hear a baby cry within 30 milliseconds, the periaqueductal gray is activated, which is involved in caregiving, oxytocin, all of these scientific discoveries started to say, you know, there's this clear function of compassion to take care of vulnerable individuals, because our species doesn't propagate without doing that. And then all these neurophysiological discoveries started to accompany it. And then alongside that is the cooperation group argument, like If you start cultivating compassion, like what do you do to your latter part of your question? You teach a a kid to be compassionate, they'll do better with their peers. They'll avoid the bully. They'll rise a bit at work, you know. So it has all of this kind of multi-pronged evidence to say, like Karen Armstrong said, the religious historian, this is the fundamental emotion of social life.
2: Compassion.
1: Yeah. And, And, you know, to me... We did a neuroimaging study showing compassion-triggered activation in the ductal gray. That's old. It's down in the brainstem, right? So it says, this is old stuff in our evolution.
2: That's really interesting. I'm not
1: sure I answered your question. <laughs>
2: oh, no, that was fantastic. I, I know I'm gonna hand it off to Forrest here, but I just have to totally geek out. I, I have a slide quoting Charles Darwin to your point in which Darwin says, all sentient beings developed through natural selection in such a way that pleasant sensations serve as their guide and especially the pleasure derived from sociability and from loving our families. Wow, I didn't know that quote. You'll have to send that to me, thank you. Yeah, Darwin had some serious game. Okay, Forrest.
0: <laughs> he, he was a pretty smart guy. That, that Charles, Charles will be okay. Yeah, his, his work worked out okay. <laughs> you rock, Chuck. Oh, good job, man. Um, yeah, no. So, it, it, kind of keying off of everything that you're saying here, Dacher, we're, we're you know the value of positive emotions, compassion being this really valuable thing, in groups being essential for survival on a lot of different levels. People living in the United States are probably listening to all of this and they're going, wait, where was that a month ago? You know, during like the presidential election and things like that. And the flip side and the kind of challenges of that, of intense in-group ties, is that often they are met by equally intense negativity directed towards out-groups. And that's become a major social challenge that we're experiencing as a country, as a world and so on. And I think that people might be listening to this going, wait, where was the compassion before? Or what can we do to get more compassion toward other people back into the conversation, particularly in a environment where, you know, we're, we're dealing with very different perspectives on what should be and even what is out in the world. You've done really, really foundational work on power dynamics and on the interplay of power between people and specifically how different groups of people can view each other as being profoundly out of touch with the nature of the world. When I was researching your work, one phrase that I bumped into is naive realism. Uh, Would you mind kind of explaining that to people? Because it feels like it has a lot of implications these days.
1: Oh my God. You know, it's such a a pleasure to talk about power because, you know, in some ways, I mean, that's kind of, it's been one of the abiding questions in my career. And I was raised by hippies and who didn't believe in power and I thought power didn't exist and then reality really slapped me in the face, you know, and it's it's just it's the in some sense, as Bertrand Russell said, you know, the great philosopher and mathematician, you know, it's the fundamental medium of life. Like how do we create power dynamics that are healthy? Uh, and, and the US has really unhealthy power dynamics, there's no doubt, in terms of inequality, which we study, Trump-like Machiavellian power, which has been on the rise, et cetera. I got interested in this and and we are in a moment of naive realism, you know, and it was, it was something that Lee Ross, my advisor at Stanford, through my door, a brilliant guy, you know, it, it's really striking that, you know, and it's one of the challenges of democracy, which is that the human mind has this naively naive sense that we have unique access to the truth. We don't sort of treat skeptically the evidence that streams through our sensory organs. We are not as aware of our biases in gathering information and making judgments as other people's biases. And so what Lee and I documented in my dissertation work in the 90s, you know, and and there has been a rise in polarization documented by political scientists, that if you get people from opposing sides to the abortion debate or the death penalty debate or... At the time, believe it or not, we were studying apartheid in South Africa, you know, (laughs) a long time ago, late 80s. Both sides believe they are relatively objective, (laughs) that they have the facts, and that those other guys over there, because they have different views of the facts, or they don't have facts, and they are wild-eyed, dangerous extremists. And what's interesting is if you really look at people's beliefs, which we did time and time again in these ideological disputes, there was actually a lot of common ground. You know, I could talk to a Trump supporter, and if, even though I like the idea of defunding the police and transferring funds to social welfare and health, right, and that kind of work that police officers are now doing that they're not trained to do, or to mitigate the biases in it, we would probably both agree that police officers are doing the wrong work, right? They're, they're negotiating marital disputes with two people who have guns when they should really be doing other kinds of work. And, and so we could reach some accord. So this tendency toward naive realism is just jacked up by obviously about, I go to my websites, the digital echo chamber. And you know, it's, it's so humbling. You, you know, when you're my age, you're like, well, we thought that was a problem 125 20, years ago. And it's a worse problem today. (laughs) So it's very relevant to our times. Although I think there's a lot of reason for optimism in in where we are politically.
0: If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing Science based myth busting podcast. That's a must listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot beingwell. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website.
2: I think back on my own experience as a little kid going to school and going back to the frame here as social primates that we we began with, just the way in which power manifested on the first grade playground. Brutal. (laughs) (laughs) There were the alphas and then there were the betas like me, (laughs) a kid who was very young going through school and skinny and all the rest of that. And you learn to really pay attention to the people who had power because they could make or break it for you. And one of the things that's been striking in your work is the ways in which you have found that as people accumulate power as a generalization, rather than feeling increasingly secure and therefore able to be generous and pro-social, they actually can tend to become increasingly self-absorbed, selfish, and you know, unkind to others. How come? And how does that happen as a generalization? And what do you found about the individuals who stand against that stream, who are the exceptions to that general rule? What are are their characteristics and how can we get more of them?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Man, yeah, you know, so- Take your time. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus. So, you know, so it's interesting. 30 years ago when I was studying naive realism, to Forrest's question, I did a study of professors, and they were debating about what you should teach in English classes. And it was interesting, the younger professors had a more accurate sense of other people's attitudes. They didn't stereotype as much. The senior professors like me, especially the white privileged ones, were stereotyping wildly, you know, and just like, oh, those young people, all they want to teach is radical minority literature, et cetera. <laughs> and, and that was interesting. It was like, it posed this paradox. Like, wow, there you are. You've been in the field for a long time. You have all the resources you would ever need. And you've studied, and yet your thought is more simplistic. Isn't that ironic, right? And that pointed to the first piece to this puzzle that Rick nicely outlined, which is time and time and time again, what we find is if you don't have power, If you're the skinny kid on the playground, if you don't have resources and you join, you know, you join an organization and you're the new person. If you don't have money, man, to survive, you are going to pay careful attention to other people. You're going to ask really good questions. You are going to pay attention to the movements of their face. You're going to listen to their voice. You're going to write stuff down. Right. And, and we just find, you know, I am meeting with a student after this talk and, you know, we found it again, like, Lower class students, if you give them really hard emotional displays to judge, are better judges. Huh. And there's there's something about not having power that, that gives you an edge, right?
2: It makes me think of Ta-Nehisi Coates' said privilege is not having to take things into account. Yeah. yeah, It's such a powerful, far-reaching idea.
1: It's so profound. I was talking to this music instructor, Robert Greenberg, who teaches the most widely accepted or learned music course online, hundreds of thousands of people. And he's, and I was talking about this and he's like, of course, all the great composers did their best work when they were poor and they're just starting. Right. And then once they get privileged and they're at the court society and sipping wine, they lose their edge. So that's, that's point one. And it's really, you know, it's important to, it's just important to remember, you know, when we think about wisdom that, it comes from people often who have less. And then the second point, you know, it's so embarrassing. Like, as people rise in power, they have resources, they have respect, you kind of would think that they would be, you know, that they would be gracious. and But, you know, we find that they are less empathetic. They're less charitable. You know, you may have heard of our car study, drivers of wealthy cars drive through pedestrian zones, almost hitting a Berkeley undergrad who's part of our study. They swear at colleagues. Their thought gets let's. I, w- I want
2: to go back to that experiment because it's so cool. <laughs> basically, this is social psychology, right? So it's t- correct me, Dak, here, but basically, yeah. you had undergrads uh, start walking through crosswalks, and then others would see what sort of cars would stop and not stop, and the old junkers would stop, <laughs> but the posh Uber Beamers would just blow through the intersection yeah. more often than not, more or less, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, and it's. It's one of our biggest findings ever. If you're driving a clunker, (laughs) you stop 100% of the time. If you're driving a fancy BMW, you drive through that pedestrian zone 46% of the time, Mm. right? (laughs) Almost hitting a pedestrian. It's like, wow, you know? So, yeah, (laughs) and it's so interesting. Deb Grunfeld, my colleague in this work, did a, a paper early in this. Supreme Court justices when they write from a position of power, their legal reasoning is less sophisticated, right? When you're writing in from the minority position, you're sharper, you're following the evidence and argument better. So it's just, it's ironic. And that's why I called it the power paradox that here you have all the reason to be sharp and generous, and and we don't. And so your question is key, Rick, which is, you know, where do we how do we train leaders to do a better job of this? Where do we find them? You know, where what are, can
2: we learn from the exceptions? Yeah, from the, the
1: exceptions. And there are a lot of exceptions in certain sectors like social welfare and public health. But man, when you get to finance and you get to American politics, you know, there's a great paper showing kind of Machiavellian people gravitate to Washington, DC. <laughs> so power just jacks up those tendencies and you know, I've been teaching this for twenty-five years, and it's the same story. It was Reagan, it was George W. Bush, shock and awe, then it was Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and then Trump. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a deep law.
2: You're naming, interestingly, all men. And are there any gender differences in this tendency?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and that's the that is the the big question historically, because We are, you know, when you compare where we are with respect to power and gender 500 years ago, 100 years ago, 15,000 years ago, women have risen to power. Yeah. Right. There's no, you know, they haven't cracked the top CEO strata. Venture capitalists are all white men for the most part in Southeast Asia. That's a problem. But, you know, it's interesting. There are two studies, Credit Suisse, and then a McKinsey consulting report showing women in positions of leadership are more ethical. Mm. and and it, people have noted that countries that did really well responding to the covid are led by women typically right yeah yeah and so your question rick is a deeper question i've been wanting people to write that book like give it give power to women right and people of color because they will have that edge we've been talking about and won't abuse power
0: we'll see this is making me think Decker, about Kind of a very fundamental question here that I'm just really curious on your take on because you've done such broad work in this territory, talking about a lot of different things. Basically, what you're saying to summarize is that when people are dependent on their social group, they are more sensitive to that social group. Exactly. Kind of period. The more powerful you are, the less dependent you are in your social group. So the less you you need to care about what that social group thinks. Yeah, fundamental. Fundamentally, yeah. So which makes me wonder about our kind of nature as animals or our nature as people. Are we just kind of nice and compassionate to other people because we feel like we have to be? Or are we that way because we want to be? And kind of one of the negative implications of some of this work on power that are certainly rising in my mind is that hey it's it's giving some evidence that maybe we're just nice to other people because we feel like if we're not they're going to be cruel back to us and then we won't be able to get the resources that we need out in the world in order to survive. Yeah. Is that somewhat negative viewpoint consistent with what you think like what's your take on this in in terms of the implications for our deep nature?
1: Yeah, you know, and again, we could take a couple of hours to sort of consider all the dimensions to your question. Yeah. First point is we always have to think about individual differences. You know, we are these, you know, 50% of our temperament is heritable, you know, uh, you know, from giant twin studies, well-replicated, including tendencies towards Machiavellian exploitation versus pro-social kindness. So there's individual variability. And on that, you know, I will just put a little asterisk here we're just about to publish some work that, you know, there are kind of two strategies toward gaining power. One is this more kind, empathetic, collaborative approach. And then the other is a more Machiavellian, be compassionate to exploit others. I believe that about half of human nature are, and we have data on this, are these deep emotional tendencies we've been talking about, including compassion and kindness and altruism. Michael Tomasello, Jan Engelman in my department, Amazing work coming out of Tomasello is really, he's at Duke now, is really worth consulting. You know, young kids just show compassion. They will help a stranger. They'll give a resource. They want to be around kinder kids. They cry when other kids cry. And Tomasello says, to deep nature question that Rick alluded to earlier, you know, this really separates us from chimps. In particular, right, which is kindness and and cooperation and mirroring and synchronization. So there's deep nature. And then you know when you look at the uh, culture evolution people that I really instruct, Joseph Henrik, Boyd, and Richardson, one of them at UCLA, where your dad went. Those guys say like culture, our our morals, our principles, our religious texts come out of deep nature, right? And they were songs and chanting were ways of saying we want people to share. We want people to cooperate or be kind or tend to people who are blind or suffering. And so it's this, and cultural evolution tells us, it's this complex woven fabric of, well, we have this deep tended seed our compassion. We speak about it. We sing about it. We, we tell stories about it that becomes culture. And I think we're landing in, in that kind of understanding. But it's interesting. I appreciate that you use the word deep nature. Right Because some in the cultural world are afraid of the idea of deep nature, or they the idea that there would be Buddha tendencies in the brain like your dad has written about, they'd be like, "No, those are all constructed. that just doesn't that flies in the face <laughs> of a lot of neuroscience and genetics and and our understanding of deep nature
2: right it seems almost it seems uh, contradictory somehow for in the history of science for there to be such an affirmation of our negative instincts, thinking about psychoanalysis and Freud and so forth, just taken for granted, but then there's a rule out for, no, you couldn't possibly have positive instincts. And that just seems like such an error of logic.
1: It's a, you know, and and Rick, I mean, you're almost bringing tears to my eyes. Like when I used to give talks 20 years ago about positive emotion, there's a thing like compassion. I remember getting just treated with hostility by like business
2: schools. Yeah
1: you know, psychoanalytic institutes. Like, how can you even say this wishy-washy stuff about the human brain? And I'm like, it's just a logical statement, right? There may be a physiological system for compassion like there is for fear. That's all I'm saying. So yeah, no, I hear you.
2: Well, let's maybe talk about one of the most woo-woo emotions of all, awe. Uh, You've been a real groundbreaking uh, scholar in this territory of the study of awe. Uh, You've actually, if I believe correctly, have gotten National Institute, you know, funding for major studies of awe, like awe is now a thing. What got you interested in awe? What does awe mean? And what have you learned about how people develop it and use it?
1: You know, it's interesting. I got interested in awe. You know, it's very interesting. I was raised very luckily in some ways by unusual parents who were alternative. You know, my dad was an artist my mom was uh, taught romanticism and literature. So they got me interested in it, in art and, and, and romanticism, which was a great period in the 19th century of awe and a new kind of science. I think what happened to me is I started to do research like to what Forrest sort of framed of like positive emotions like love and compassion and desire and laughter and Knowing this science, I would have these experiences like watching my daughters get born, just like whoa, and just goosebumps and tears and and I'm like, that's an emotion, right? And so broad strokes, awe is when you're around vast things you don't understand, and you use the word mystery. It's so often we you know we, we shy away from mystery. Awe is about mystery i like, I don't understand this, you know, or, and I may mean, never will. You know, why do people die? Awe's about vast forces that, that are part of your life, like nature and collectives and big ideas.
2: Why, Decker, why did you go to, why do people die?
1: Well, you know, it's personal and this got me, I'm working on a book right now on Awe. Um, we surveyed people in 30 countries and the sources of awe and this is how you can find it are what you would expect like nature people who inspire you moving with other people in dance or sport great ideas painting music and dying and when i would talk to groups like you do rick you know about awe and say what made you feel awe and every time someone would raise their hand and i and and i remember one in particular this woman who's about 65 and she said holding my sister's hand as she died. And I was like, I don't get it. And the personal side is my brother recently passed away about two years ago. And I was there and I felt awe. you know, I was like, wow, what is life? Why does someone who you, you can barely live without who's 55 die? Right. And what do you, why is the mind suddenly searching for meaning? So, Awe is right there at the great mysteries of life and and leads us to insights and to rebuild community.
2: I find myself connecting the humility in awe to the humility of sorts that Forrest was talking about that fosters pro-social empathy and altruism and, and deeper understanding of others. Because when you're more humble, you you naturally need to do that. So isn't that interesting that maybe people who are more Prone to awe are also perhaps more inclined toward empathic prosocial relations with others and and we find
1: that in, and it's if you go back to deep nature in our evolutionary story as we started to fold into these groups that really did everything together, and as you said, Rick, selfish exploitation is exile and it's and it's a death sentence in those groups. yeah, we needed these mechanisms to quiet the self, and awe. Be it in music or meditation or art or psychedelics makes yourself disappear and you become like really interested in other people, humble. You share stuff. That's all those are all findings. So it's, it's good news for, for the collective. And the challenge is what Forrest talked about earlier of like, how do we make sure it doesn't turn into Soviet, you know, Stalinism where they are awestruck by Stalin? our Nazism and our white supremacy. And that's always our challenge.
0: So built into that, you gave some suggestions. Basically, you talked about music and meditation and and ways to kind of experience awe and then the potential value of awe in terms of bringing us more into connection with other people, uh, maybe dropping the sense of selfing a little bit, which has generally been sound and researched to be kind of good for people. At the biggest possible scale, and sorry to sort of spring this question on you, Dacker, but I, I couldn't help myself when I, when we kind of were talking about it, Rick and I, the other day, if you were empowered by some body of people as the uh, the director of the department of like collective well being, collective happiness,
2: Biden gives you a call.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's like, all right, Dacker, I need you to solve this issue in America right now, which obviously too much for three minutes and probably too much for any one person. But like, what's the first thing that you would suggest to people to start to address some of these issues as just like a good practice that a person could do in their life?
1: Yeah, so you know, there are two different answers. You know, and I think it's interesting for us, you go out into the world like we all do and like your dad does and you know, people are like, well, I wanna make sure that I spend 10 minutes a day on my diet and I'm gonna be spending 10 minutes a day on crunches for my abs. And I would, I would create, you know, the first thing I would do, and I think this is going to happen informally is, and and since we're talking about awe, you could do that for all these states and just like make sure you're doing 10 minutes a day of one of the states we've talked about, compassion, gratitude, et cetera. But awe is really interesting because we are figuring out how to, you know, with our awe walk uh, work, we have recent work where we were contacted by a medical doctor, you know, healthcare professionals are fried and they are facing hell right now. You know, it is, they got to watch old people die without families around. I mean, it's it's a horror story. Lot of elevated suicides right now in healthcare providers, lots of burnout and depression. Rightfully so, they're facing, you know, COVID and its, its complexities. So they reached out to us and we just did a study where, We just taught healthcare professionals like once a day, kind of what Rick does, right? Like slow down, attend to things, breathe, and then expand your consciousness. Like what's the big purpose here? How does light change all the colors of your living room? Think big, right? Uh, And that's kind of an awe induction. And we found dramatic reductions in anxiety and depression in healthcare professionals. And so just to get your, you know, I, uh, in high school, your dad and I, you know, there was the national presidential, you know, exercise, Send 10 things you had to do. And in my school, you had to do pushups. You had to climb a damn rope.
0: I feel like I remember this. There was some standardized exercise fitness test I had to do in middle school that I was totally confused by. So yeah, I'm right there with you.
1: Like you had, you know, with your, your Nazi, um, you know, PE teacher, like, that's not a push up. I'm like, come on, man, you know? And, and, and now every American citizen had to do that or a student. I'm like, well, yeah, it's great to exercise, but why not 10 awe exercises, right? Sure. Listen to music once a week where you're like, wow, what brings tears to my eyes? And think about that. Look at a piece of art for awe. Pick an idea that you love, right? And just mull it over. Like we've been mulling over ideas here. You know, think about, here's an easy one. Think of somebody who morally inspires you, right? And suddenly you're like, whoa, I, you know, like at Berkeley and UCLA, uh, we have students who are formerly incarcerated getting degrees from UCs. And when I meet them, I'm like, these guys blow my mind, you know? So I, I would do that. And what's interesting is awe connects us to all the great traditions we've cared about, you know, science and art and physics and quantum physics, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I just came on this finding that Science Magazine current estimate in the Milky Way galaxy that there are roughly 300 million potentially habitable Earth-like planets, rocky planets where there can be liquid water on the surface, Three hundred. Million! You
1: just gave me goosebumps.
2: <laughs> there you are. It's your dose of awe. <laughs> that that for me blows my mind. I'm like, oh wow, and I feel you know awe and gratitude. Don't they go really closely together? They do. I, I feel yeah. yeah. I feel like a lot. I you know I kind of practice the mood, if you will, a mood of gobsmacked with gratitude. Just like wow.
1: Yeah, awe and gratitude. Some people in Confucianism they called it reverence.
2: And then how can you possibly be a jerk? to the next person you bump into when you're kind of blown open with awestruck gratitude. yeah. At least you have a, a hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of reasons to
1: be jerks, but <laughs> I agree. Totally agree.
2: I want to ask you one last question, and yeah, it's not going to be well-formed, I think, but just thinking about you. I've known you for a while, and in a funny kind of way, I think of you as someone who has navigated and for reasons I don't entirely know about, has had to navigate some sorrowful places. Yeah, yeah. In in your awareness of others, maybe in your life itself. And and still, you've retained this really resilient, caring, yeah, happy quality. And I'm just kind of wondering how you have practiced yourself over your life in maybe one or two ways that have been really important for you.
1: I have had you know, a lot of sorrow and, uh, and losing my brother, you know, who was my companion in awe. We were, he was 14 months younger. You know, we did everything together was devastating. And that was two years ago. And it, it brought me to practice that offers an answer to you, Rick, which is, yeah, I was reduced to nothing. I was in a hyper inflamed bodily state, you know, I'm not a depressive type. I'm really I have a lot of energy. And and my old younger daughter was like, man, you know, she kept calling me, like, what's up? You know, you are catatonic. And uh, and I committed myself to wonder and mystery and awe. And so what it meant in that very hard moment is and you know, a few things. One is just get outdoors and find wonder. And we've talked about that. Two was Find people who morally inspire you, who make you tear up. And for me, it's, um, I can't explain why, but it's former prisoners and getting inside in prison and veterans, you know, just trying to help. And then, you know, find your realm of culture, you know, which you do a great job of, Rick, you know, just in our conversations, quoting Darwin today, like, find where other people you admire who where, you know, it may be a piece of music that they put out. I've always loved minimalism in music, you know, pop versions, Brian Eno, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, Terry Riley. And, you know, when I was in grief, I was like, I'm just going to dive into this. And, like, what is it? And where does it come from? And, you know, so find that stuff. And, yeah, we have a negativity bias in our, our brains for a good reason, but we also have a sacred bias. Like, we got to get that stuff. You know, and so for me, it was outside moral inspiration and find the pieces of culture that sustain you.
2: Beautiful. Really touched my heart. Thank you very much.
0: Well, Decker, we kind of got to let you go here, but thank you so much for doing this with us today. It was a totally interesting conversation. I completely enjoyed it.
1: I'm sad to go. This will be the best conversation of my day, as it always is with the Hansons, Uh, first with Rick and now with Forrest. And and thanks for letting me be, be on your show. So happy to do it. It's been great being with you, for us.
0: So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Dacher Keltner. He's a wonderful educator, a professor at UC Berkeley, and as you found during the conversation, an expert on a wide variety of topics, including emotion, power, and morality. We began by talking about his work studying emotion. While early work on emotion found that there were a relatively small number of primary emotions, maybe five of them, for instance... More contemporary research, including very recent research that Dacher has done himself on the way that facial expressions work, suggests that there are actually quite a few more emotions than that, that there are maybe 20, maybe even more than that, and that there are kind of complicated blendings of emotions. And this is really consistent with our lived experience of the world. I think that most people have the experience of emotions being fuzzy. Sometimes you're feeling multiple things at once. The boundaries between emotions are not always super firm. So this is one of those really nice moments where the research really lines up with our human experience of the world. We went on from there to talk about compassion and why humans are compassionate. Maybe even more broadly, why do we have positive emotions at all, given that we evolved under circumstances that were extremely harsh? What's the value of being generous or being kind to another person in an environment where resources are extremely limited, and one might think that a kind of lookout for number one attitude would actually be the best way to survive? It turns out that, for humans at least, pro-social emotions were actually an evolutionary strong point. Whether it's the whole idea of it takes a village or how challenging it is for one human to survive in extremely cold environments, prosocial emotions and our social nature more broadly were actually an evolutionary benefit for people. There was something that helped us survive those very harsh conditions. We went on from there to talk about the challenges that can emerge from those tight social groups that humans are so good at forming. If you have a really strong in-group, it often means that you've got a pretty strong outgroup too. And we've seen the implications of that in the increasing rise of political polarization and other social struggles that we've been experiencing as a country and as a global community over the last several years. We spent a minute talking about naive realism, which is essentially our human tendency to attribute extremism to people who aren't us. We tend to think that our in-group is really rational, very in touch with reality, whereas out-groups are all extremists who don't have any sense of what's really going on in the world. And this is only heightened by a media environment that really plays into this polarization. We went from there to talk about what we can do about all of this and how people can promote more pro-social emotions in their life. We went from there to talk about power and the ways in which people who have power often have more disregard for others than people who don't. There could be a lot of different explanations for this, but a obvious one is that when you have power, you don't need other people as much. When people come up in environments where they are poor, where they have low social status, anything like that, where they essentially don't have power, they become a lot better at reading social cues and tuning into the emotions of other people because that's a survival tool. When you're not in a position of power, you really need to be able to have a keen sense for which way the wind's blowing. And the challenge associated with this is that in our society more broadly, it is often not those people who rise to positions of control. There are two challenges associated with this. The first is that it's often not those people who rise to positions of political power for a lot of different reasons that we don't have time to get into, This leads to a couple of different challenges. The first is that, obviously, it's often not those people who rise to positions of political or social power. And the second one is that even if somebody is a kind, compassionate person, when they finally achieve power, there's a tendency for them to, well, lose those tendencies. That power can start to blind them to the social needs of the people around them. And this creates Obviously, a very challenging dynamic socially and politically for people to exist inside of. Toward the end of the conversation, we talked about awe. And associated with awe, I asked Dacker if he were the head of the Department of Well Being, what he would advocate uh, everyone in the world do as just basic exercises that they could do to improve the happiness and well-being in their life more broadly. And he really spoke to the power of practice, deliberate practice every day, a couple of minutes, doing the best you can to authentically experience positive emotions. And one of the interesting things I found in the emotions that he named or the experiences that he named was that it was really just about normalizing the experience of soft emotions. He talked about being moved to tears. He talked about experiencing awe in another person. He talked about art. And for me, there's a consistent soft emotional experience associated with all of these things. That feeling of opening and allowing yourself to be moved by another person, by the creation of another person, or hey, maybe even the scale and majesty of the universe altogether. Whatever does it for you. And that emphasis on practice, I think, was a great place to close our conversation as it really brought it home. We talked about a lot of stuff today that was a little out there, a little theoretical, very science-oriented. We talked about a lot of stuff today that was based in theory rather than practice, but even so, that closing note on the fundamental importance of doing what you can each day in your own life, I felt, was so central to the conversation as a whole. So, that's all for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, Leave a rating, leave a positive review, and hey, if you could, maybe even tell a friend about it, post about it on social media. It really does help us reach more people with the work that we're doing here, and we really do appreciate it. Alongside that, if you've been enjoying the podcast for a while and you'd like to find another way to contribute, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com beingwellpodcast. Every week, I put together elaborate show notes for each episode, and we also record special episodes that just go out to our patrons. Finally, you can find us all over social media. We're at Podcast on Instagram. And then I have a Facebook page. Rick has a Facebook page. The podcast has a Facebook page. We both have Twitter. We're on all the things. So again, thank you so much for supporting the show. And we'll talk to you again soon. Until then, thanks for listening.